Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author and journalist Michael Smith, and we discuss his book, Anatomy of a Spy, and we take a look at why spies spy. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are many ways you can support it. First of all, you can share episodes with friends, family, and colleagues. You can also retweet an episode and connect with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. You can also support the show by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash DryCleanerCast, Patreon subscribers will get early access to episodes and there are two bonus episodes waiting for you. Also, if you like this podcast, you may enjoy my film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction and the film is now available on Amazon and iTunes. It comes in at about $2.99. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Michael, welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. It's great to have you on. So for the benefit of listeners who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you just please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, I worked in British military intelligence um, in the 70s, early 80s. I then moved to an organisation called the BBC Monitoring Service, which listened still does uh, under the now now called BBC Monitoring, but a much smaller organization as well, unfortunately. But that listens to um, radio stations around the world. So, and intercepted news agency broadcasts over because mm. the news agencies sent their, their teleprinted mm. copy over the air so that um, people could intercept it in those days mm. and, and just download it and um, report on it from that. It did that sort of over-monitoring different countries around the world, focusing BBC Monitoring Service, because it was tied with the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, which was part of the CIA. The BBC Monitoring Service focused particularly on certain areas, and the Foreign Broadcast Information Service focused on others. And that sort of mirrors the way that the Five Eyes um, Intelligence Alliance mm. operates. In fact, it does mirror it because it, mm. you know, uh, when BBC Monitoring and FBIS started working together, it was very much as an overt intelligence operation, cooperation between Britain and America. And in fact, in the immediate years after the Second World War, um, when all these deals were being done, the one between BBC and, and FBIS was was pretty much one of the first. But the the thing it did was it listened in to all these places around the world, which it was difficult to access otherwise. So, um, for example, Tehran Radio, I remember being sat on the desk in the news bureau as the duty editor when a monitor, a Farsi monitor, walked into the news bureau and, and they all of these people, you know, they're reporting from their homes, 
you know, their homes are very um, often very dangerous places, and you know their their fellow countrymen and women are are you know, in danger. So they're very emotionally attached to these things. So he rushed in, really rushed in, and um, he he put this this piece of paper on um, on my desk. This transcript of something that had been said on Tehran radio. And of course, this is all, you know, it's easy to forget now, but this is all in the days when it was completely paper, really. Yeah. And it says that Ayatollah Khamenei, who was the spiritual leader of Iran at the time, of course, yeah. had imposed a fatwa on Salman Rushdie, the British author, mm. for his book, The Satanic Verses. And he said, this is really important. And I said yeah it looks it um and then he rushed out and i had to stop him halfway through and i said yeah but hold on what's a fatwa <laughs> and you know it sounds odd now but yeah. in those days you know it wasn't a term that anyone had actually heard mm. no one you know i had not the faintest idea what a fatwa was he came back and explained it and of course you know that this puts this divine a duty on all of the faithful to try to kill Salman Rushdie. Yeah, and yeah. so I had to put a flash, um, you know, flash story that about this to um, the BBC, to Reuters, mm. to AP, all our customers, mm. and of course the government. And um, yeah, it, it was very much like that at monitoring. I remember being up all night on a night shift the day that Ceausescu was brought down mm. in Romania. Mm. And working overnight, and it never stopped because all these organizations, which had been, um, they were local communist party organizations, basically, um, were announcing that they were now democratic and and free and um, and, and representing the people. And it was, um, was, you know, some of it was less mundane than that. Some of it was actually more important, but it was... um, it was quite a night. Another day, I wasn't in the chair. I wasn't writing this story. Mm. I was on duty when TASS announced that there'd been a huge ins- explosion yeah. at a nuclear weapons plant at a place, again, a word I'd never heard of before until that moment, Chernobyl. Yeah, wow. Wow. I still remember the Chernobyl broadcast from my childhood. Um and uh, and then you know my parents slowly telling me about what all that was about. But uh, yeah, oh my goodness! So you've you've in a sense been a, a witness to a lot of history in that role. That's fantastic. Yeah. Then I moved to the Daily Telegraph. Mm. I became a newspaper journalist. I worked on the foreign desk. Then I worked as a general news reporter, which frankly was the most interesting time of my life because you know they sent you everywhere. And then I was defence correspondent, which also had interest because you. Know, very often you're being sent off to report on a war somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And um, then I moved to the Sunday Times. And then um, what was it? I suppose seven years ago, um, I left the Sunday Times and became a full-time author, writing books on spies, code-breaking, intelligence, all that sort of stuff. So that's me. Yeah. And you wrote a fantastic book on Frank Foley. Frank Foley was a great book. Well, thank you. It's one of the things I'm most proud of. As a journalist, I was the sort of journalist that goes out and gets lots of new stories. Mm. So, you know, Downing Street Memos um, was a huge story back in um, 2004, 2005. And, And that sort of story, which, you know, I think 
because I was trusted, and I don't mean this in a way that I was, you know, not being a judicious journalist, mm. but because mm. I was trusted, because I understood the subject, I did get a lot of secret stuff um, passed to me. Yeah, mm, brilliant. Well, you've written this fantastic new book called "The Anatomy of a Spy" that looks into the kind of motivations of why people become spies. So, what was it that drew you to wanting to write that book? Um, <laughs> Right. Well, um, it was the suggestion of my commissioning editor. <laughs> That's always um, a good motivation. I can't claim, oh, you know, that instant moment, oh, I must write a book on <laughs> why spies spy. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a brilliant idea. Mm. And she came up with this traditional FBI phrase. It's a, a anagram, really, I mm. suppose, of money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Yeah. And so it's easy to do that as MICE mice. But, you know, she she was she'd been told about this and she thought it was a fantastic idea to write something. I said, Well, it's much more complex than the FBI would have it there. Um mm. there are all sorts mm. of other reasons why people spy and it's also complex in the sense that there won't ever be necessarily well, there there is sometimes, but rarely is there only one factor making someone spy and very often their reasons for spying will evolve and change over the years if they're a long-term agent so it i thought this is actually even as i was talking thinking actually this would work yeah yeah indeed well before we go into some of those specifics can you talk to us about the difference between an agent and an intelligence officer because a lot of people kind of confuse the two yeah i think in general terms you Intelligence officers and intelligence agents can be classified as spies, but an intelligence mm. officer wouldn't really want you to describe him or her as a spy because they're not the person actually on the front line doing that sort of stuff. An intelligence officer is a member of MI6. Mm. We're talking simple terms here, MI6 mm. rather than SIS. Historically, KGB um, for Russians, uh, it makes it easier, I think. Mm. So a intelligence officer in the, the old-fashioned Cold War Soviet KGB or the GRU, the military, Soviet military intelligence, they're members of the organization. They are running what they mm. call agents, who are mm. people who can do stuff who have a capability for some reason or another, and very often, of course, because they want to do it, um, is, you know, they're the agents. They're not, they don't work for MI6. They're not paid a salary. Mm. They're um, paid as and when they're paid and um, when they produce often. Um, so their agents intelligence officers are the people who are actually members of the intelligence services. Mm. I was just thinking of um, when you talked about the payment, I was just thinking of John Lacari described it as the, the reptile fund, didn't he? John Lacari has his own tradecraft terms, some mm. of which are actually, were actually genuine, some of which, you know, he's made up um, yeah. because he yeah. wants to betray the intelligence services in a certain way. And some of them have been adopted over the years by the intelligence services anyway. Quite an achievement on his part, though. Oh, he, he is. I was saying to someone else the other day, um, they just messaged me and said they'd been reading one of his books. And, and mm. I said he is, you, you know, in my mind, he is one of the greatest writers yeah. on this field and certainly um, 
a brilliant storyteller. Mm, mm. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Even even some of the books that aren't quite as strong as others are still fantastic books. Yeah, you know? yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's brilliant. He's brilliant. So no, absolutely love him. Well, um, as you mentioned before, so we talked about money, ideology, compromise, and ego, which is sort of um, known as mice. You found that is a bit more complicated than that when it comes to people's motivations. Tell us a little bit about what you found, and I guess we'll start with um, well, we'll start with sexual relations, which is always a popular topic when talking about espionage especially in films so can you just tell us some of the about some of the stories that sort of stood out for you and furthered your understanding of how the intelligence services sort of use sexual relations for recruitment yeah indeed um i think you know the first thing to say in intelligence terms about um sex and using sex is that it is because sexual relations are by the very nature of things, often unpredictable. Mm. It is a dangerous route to go down. People who who are vulnerable can be very open to sexual coercion mm. or and of course men historically have always been open to sexual coercion. In fact I start the whole book off with by asking the question why spy spy um using the um using the example of Samson and Delilah. Um and there isn't very much in the Bible about Samson and Delilah in fact, but um when you pull the various verses from cha- from that chapter apart, you can actually see an awful lot about their relationship and how it works. Mm. So it's it's dangerous. Um, also, it ties up if you've got a long term agent, you're tying up one person eternally, almost. You know, um, for an indeterminate time, and that's not something you want to be doing. Mm. These Germans did it very, very well during the Cold War. And one of the reasons for that was that they knew their targets. And sex works best, not just with men, actually, but with people who are lonely, Mm. people who haven't got a sexual partner, who Mm. long for a sexual partner. And so lonely women, and of course, a lot of secretaries working um, West German secretaries working for NATO, working for um, the German government in some form or other, not always in the intelligence services, but um, quite often in the intelligence services. You know, lonely women who actually never met men who, other than as work colleagues, were very, very vulnerable, not because they wanted the sex, but because they wanted to meet someone to share things with. Uh, share their life with, mm. and that's exactly what you want. Yes, isn't it? Um, someone who will share things, who's eager to share things with you. So it it worked very well in that case, and men as well can be very lonely. I mean, the key case I think in in the book in terms of this is John Bassel, who was yeah. Uh, yeah. He worked for the Admiralty, but he was posted to the British Embassy in Moscow as an assistant to the naval attaché. So he's he's seeing everything that the naval attaché is seeing about um, collection of collecting intelligence on the mm. um, Soviet Navy. He um, is not someone who easily makes friendships. He's um, not in the Foreign Office, so. He's not a foreign office employee, so there is this sort of status thing within the Moscow embassy at this time in the early 50s where he's sort of like a second-class citizen. He 
is gay. And so he can't even have open friendships at this time um, with, with sexual partners. Um, so he is targeted, again, by the Russians, um, by the KGB, in a very, very well-executed operation. He was set up you know, in an orgy situation. Um, they took photos of him. And the first person they threatened to take the photos to was Lady Hayter, the um, the wife of the British ambassador, um, which you know was really you know, just knowing your target. That really is knowing your target socially, this socially inept but socially very aware young man, and mm-hmm. you're going to take it to a a woman and would be the the wife of the ambassador. Um, was clearly, um, with no family to talk of, that was um, the most embarrassing way to grab him. And, um, and, and it did. And he, it worked. And he, he, he was posted back to London. And, of course, he's passing all sorts of things um, to the Russians. In fact, he is working in naval intelligence. He's acts with direct access to MI6 and GCHQ reports all of which are going to the Russians. So it was an extremely good operation based on on sex. And because it's blackmail and the orgy scene, Mm. you know, it's it's something that they they really can't, you know, they don't have to worry about, for example, um, the thing I said earlier about having having to commit a long-term agent um, to him because there is no... A KGB man sleeping with him. It's um, yeah, it, yeah. it's down to blackmail and his own yeah. sense of self worth. One quick thing that did crop out in the book in this section was about the the kind of differences between how the British intelligence service is very reluctant to use this as a tactic, while sort of Eastern, you know, the Eastern Bloc services um, were kind of more pro that and actually sort of turned it into a mini industry. Is there anything you can mention about that? Yeah, I think I think I think one of the things about that is it is this committing people long term when mm. you've got smaller resources and. You, it's difficult to do it as MI6 did mm. have smaller resources. You can't really um, have someone that I'm sorry, you just can't. You can't commit one officer to to that sort of long term relationship. There's also a moral aspect to it. Yes. Um, not so much, I suppose, in worrying about the agent, but um, you know that officer himself or herself, you know, will have real sexual relationships um, and will need real sexual relationships if they're going to be fulfilled and happy. And having them have an illicit relationship with an agent, that's dangerous because Mm. you've got your enemy, if it finds out, has the opportunity to use blackmail against them. So MI6 was very reluctant to do this. CIA did it a bit more. Um, MI6 will do it if the circumstances are right, but you wouldn't get the vassal situation with a with an MI6 officer. They just wouldn't um, operate in that way. And indeed, um, I think I mentioned in the book a case of one person I'm quoting a former MI6 officer, or one person who proposed this um, this um, homosexual honey trap thing, and was pretty much, you know regarded with suspicion for a long time after that um, as an officer. I mean, I think you know, 
Equally, you know, and again, this this comes out in the book, our attitude to homosexuality, our attitude to multiple sexual relationships has changed over the years. So, you know, people probably wouldn't have been um, now as shocked by what happened to Basil as they would have been if it had been um, released at the time. Um, there's a famous case of the Muhabarat, the Iraqi Secret Service, in the early 90s, trying to get members of the UNSCOM weapons inspectors you know, to recruit them as agents. And um, one of the female domestic staff at Baghdad's higher hotel um, seduced one of the German pilots involved in this. And um, (laughs) when the Macabarat said, um, you know, confronted with him with this and said there was a video, he said, um, oh, that's great. Could you let me have a copy of it? Because when I get home, (laughs) my wife, you know, she's very liberal in these matters and we can watch it together and that'll really start our relationship back up again. So... (laughs) So, um, so it doesn't work <laughs> necessarily nowadays. No, um, but, no. <laughs> but women who are, you know, there are still cases of vulnerable women who um, are easily picked off by um, intelligence services. But it's um, but the Chinese or Cubans who, um, of course, um, for much of the Cold War, were pretty much a lead agency. For, for the Warsaw Pact. The KGB um, stands back um, and and does the big things um, and takes the big cases. Um, but a lot of the heavy lifting, a lot of the hard work was done by the Germans or the, um, or the Czechs in London, for example. It was the Czechs who did the heavy lifting, which um, of course makes it interesting that um, Jeremy Corbyn, they attempted to recruit Jeremy Corbyn as an agent. Mm. And the the Cubans, very much so, in terms of operating inside America, um, you know, they, they were used extensively and fairly recent cases of sexual relationships being used. You've also identified patriotism as a motivation for espionage. So can you tell us a little bit about how the intelligence services have used that as a motivation for recruitment? I think um, from very early days, one of the things you're worried about is how you get someone into a closed country like Iran, like North Korea, like um, the former Soviet Union, Mm. and how they can be trusted. Because KGB, for example, and a very good example, in fact, um, its fingers reach everywhere, reached everywhere, as do those of the FSB, its um, successor organization, as we saw with the Trump, old Trump thing. How do you have someone, you can be absolutely certain, um, or at least as certain as reasonably possible, um, is going to do what you want them to do, isn't a plant, isn't someone who the other intelligence services are planting on you to feed you false information and to find out information about what you do know and what you don't know, um, which is often you know, the key role of a plant. How, how do you avoid that? And from very early days, Mansfield Cumming, the first head of MI6 or what became MI6, used businessmen abroad. And if you think of the period between 1909 and 1914, Britain 
and Germany, the tensions politically were building up quite rapidly. But the commercial work between the two countries in Britain as a huge at a time, industrial nation and Germany, obviously um, an industrial nation, but also needing to build new ships, feeling the need to build new ships, feeling the need to um, do all sorts of things in terms of stuff that they needed from the British industry. You can send an, um, a businessman in and his cover is perfect because that's what he's doing, you know. So I think um, one of the most interesting person people sent in to Germany was um, a guy called Hector Bywater, yep. um, who was a journalist. Um, and he um, he wrote stories on military staff and on particularly German military staff. He based himself in um, Dresden. He was um, not a correspondent at that time for a British newspaper. He was a correspondent for an American newspaper. So that heads you away from the idea that he might be spying for, for the British. And he was inside, um, he was inside Germany in those years and um, fantastic operations run by him. Interestingly, his code name, Cumming gave him the code name H2O, which um, given his name, Tech the Bywater, was an obvious play on you know, the H for Hector, the two being by, and H2O being water. So, um, not the sort of thing that you would do in modern terms. It, you know, we're in the infancy of um, espionage as we know it um, in those days, but Bywater was extraordinarily effective at getting in with um, German naval and army officers and um, he um, he produced an awful lot of very, very interesting intelligence. So you come right up to the modern era and you have businessmen or women going into places like North Korea. Um, again, they're welcome because, you know, for whatever reason, the people are trying to obtain the goods that they're providing. So they have easy access. And as long as they're careful, as long as they don't make anything obvious, they can get away with finding out an awful lot of intelligence. And when they come home, you know, they'd be briefed. Um, they're not acting like James Bond. They're just doing their job. They have perfect cover. And that was that's been done since Cummings' time, and it's still done by MI6, and it's still done by the CIA. And in fact, um, there's a very interesting paper that I um, obtained in the mid-90s, um, and um, that was talking about post-war, um, how Britain would um, spy into, get into Russia in the post-war period. And it was talking about using um, things like the Football Association mm -hmm. um, when um, people were going over for visits, uh, matches between British and uh, Russian teams, using them, using um, the Lund Holiday Company, using Thomas Cook, using forestry, uh, timber companies um, and fur companies, which obviously, mm -hmm. you know, they had a huge... Um, exchange of goods with 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 uh, the Soviet Union. So 
using people from those organisations as spies to obtain intelligence and in all cases doing it on a would you do something for your country? And the only problem was that the, one of the key people drawing this scheme up was a man called Kim Philby, yeah. who I'm sure, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sure your your um, your listeners know precisely who Kim Philby was. So um, much of this information was passed on uh, to the Russians mm. and. Um, made it very, very difficult. Of course. Yeah, definitely. And and also there's the risk for, for people who are genuinely on business, who are not spies, and then unfortunately they um, are going to then be subject to hostile surveillance, aren't they? Yes. To be fair, the FSB are um, professionals. Mm. So they'll look at these people in different ways, depending. I think they'll suss fairly quickly, um, particularly nowadays with the electronic methods available to them, that someone isn't suspicious. Not that you necessarily be ever sure. Um, <laughs> and Or that someone is suspicious and maybe we can turn them. You know, So it's... Um, Works both ways. Yeah. Well, you know, this might lead nicely into your... You have a brilliant chapter on adventurers, fantasists, and psychopaths. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what you sort of found out about these sort of adventurers, fantasists, and psychopaths? Um, is there any particular people or, or stories that stand out for you? I think for me, always, the story of Sidney Riley stands out because he was... You know, such a Hollywood-style adventure. And, of course, you know, not Hollywood, but um, American television did stuff on him. Yeah, I think he was fantastic. Um, and I remember back in, um, back again, back in the mid-'90s, um, having a conversation with a couple of former MI6 officers with a then-serving um, MI6 officer alongside them. Um, and they were just there to ask, answer my questions for one of my books on um, historical stuff. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing that is, is actually worth quoting from that is, you know, what they said about Riley. Um, and I just find it in the book here, I think, if I may. Yeah, here it is. It's one of these two former SIS officers, um, MI6 officers I was talking to. Um, and these guys, at the time, there was no official historian inside MI6. And so these guys sort of tended the files and um, processed them and you know, put them in sensible order in, in much the same way as other retired guys go off to their allotment. you know. But um, this guy said, He's been written off, this is Riley, he's been written off by historians by and large, and, and that was true at the time. The academics had always knew Riley, like James Bond, it's all nonsense. He's been written off by historians by and large, but he has been greatly underrated. He was very, very good, a very able agent and a far more serious operator than the impression give by, given by the myth. Historians do have this tendency to write off something that has been made to appear glamorous. He was unusual, but I don't think he was glamorous. He was a bit of a crook, you could almost say. Certainly sharp practice, but as an agent, he was superb. And if you look at some of the things he did do, he was brilliant. But he was he became obsessed with the Bolshevik threat. He um, became careless. MI6 says he wasn't operating on their behalf when he was inside the Soviet Union and was captured 
by the then you know equivalent of the KGB and taken to the Lyubyanka, their you know their headquarters in Moscow. But actually, he was because no matter what they say, you know, he's there are very clear links between him and and the MI6, a man in Helsinki, who and and correspondence between them that exists on what um, what he what Riley is trying to do in there. But it was in a sense, you it is true to say he was a man on a mission and it was his own mission as much as anything for MI6. He was obsessed with the Bolshevik threat and he got involved with an organization called the Trust, which involved a lot of white Russians, emigres, anti-Bolsheviks, but was entirely infiltrated by the Soviet intelligence services. So when he was captured, taken to Lyanka, and um, then on one day just walked out into the country for a bit of exercise and in standard Soviet procedure, someone behind him fired a gun into the back of his head. Yeah, awful end. Well, let's. Um, we won't be able to cover um, every section, but I think what we'd like to do actually is just go into your final chapter, which is on uh, people who become unwitting agents for hostile intelligence services. Are there any stories that have come out in that that have interest to you? I'm fascinated, I have to say, by the relationship between Putin, who of course is a former KGB officer, served in Dresden. I don't think the fact that he served in Dresden is. Um, you know, coincidental in some parts of the uh, to what happened in some parts of um, the Trump story, frankly. Mm. But um, I won't get into that sort of detail. But um, you know, there was lots of oh, Trump's a Russian agent. Um, you know, nonsense in a sense because people weren't talking in terms of unwitting or, mm. as the British would call it, unconscious. Unwitting is a CIA term. But I do think that um, he was used as as an unwitting agent because what you're doing with an unwitting or unconscious agent is getting someone to do what you want them to do. Yeah. They, they, they could be you entirely sympathetic to your cause, but you don't want to recruit them um, for whatever reason, um, or there is no need to recruit them because they will do what you want them to do, they could be entirely imposed to your cause. Saying someone is an unwitting agent of the FSB doesn't mean that they support the FSB or would even want to support the FSB or would you feel any sympathy to Moscow whatsoever. Mm. Um, and I don't think there's any doubt at all that Donald Trump was um, was used as an unwitting agent. Mm. The aim I'm quoting here from an, another former MI6 officer: unwitting agents are an interesting mm. category, especially from the point of view of agent motivation. Mm. He actually said unconscious agents, of course, but I'm using unwitting because that's where we are. That's yeah. what we're talking about here with the American for an intelligence officer. The, Officer, the aim is to get someone to do what he wants and thus to control him. So, your your if you if Trump is doing what Putin wants him to do under control without realizing he's under control, being steered in that way by Putin and by events which are managed. And I think you know, this is the one thing. If I would say anything about the understanding of. Um, of the Trump affair, Trump-Putin affair mm. in, in, in the US is that there 
there isn't quite this understanding or even belief um, in the extent to which the FSB clearly had control over various people within the US Mm -hmm. and how they can have control over them and the extent to which, you know, an awful lot of Russian people, Russian emigres in in the US, um, far more than I think people would genuinely imagine, could be um, controlled or called on to do something very easily by the FSB. Um, and, and that sounds like conspiracy theory nonsense, but it isn't. It's true. And so you see, and I, I go, you know, the prologue to the book actually takes you through the um, the meeting in Trump Tower. Yes. The famous meeting, of course, but it goes into great detail. And, and, and the detail is available there in testimony to the congressional com- committees. So I haven't made anything up in there. It's all you know, it's all there. Um, it's the interpretation in terms of what is going on that hasn't really been pointed out. That meeting was all about testing, testing whether the Trump team, and Trump himself is not there. His son is, and Manafort is there, and so is um, Trump's son-in-law. But they're, they're very unhappy with the standard of information they're getting because they thought they were going to get dirt on Hillary, and they're not getting that. But that's not what the meeting is about. For them, it was what they thought the meeting was about. But in fact, it was, will these people be willing to use information if we put it in the public domain? And that was Hillary's emails, of course. And it's very clear to whoever was an FSB officer or agent at that meeting. And I think you know, um, anyone familiar with that will, will recognize that person because he, you know, he wasn't making any secret of it in many ways before this whole thing. Um the whole thing, that meeting is, will they will they react in the way we want them to react? And so you, this is part of A, an active measures operation. I've already spoken about how complex they are, unbelievably complex. And it's not until the 80s when we get several defectors coming to the West um, from within the KGB and GRU that we realise quite how complex these things are um, and unbelievably complex in a way that isn't logical in some ways. You know, there are, there are so many different threads. Um, it isn't like, you know, a spider spinning the web. You know, Putin is not a spider spinning the web in Moscow. He's let his wolves go and they've gone off in all sorts of different directions, confusing everyone while at the same time only aiming for one thing, and that, um, and that's why it's so difficult to get to it. But to go back to that meeting, and and this control that is being exercised at that meeting, with none of these characters knowing that it's happening, other than on the Russian side, you know, is that meeting is often dismissed as meaningless. It it was at the heart of it all, and it's not for nothing that Muller after recounting that meeting, says five days later, the emails were released. Um, So what's going on there is, you know, someone being pushed around. And and Trump, of course, you know, he is, he's typically the sort of guy that you can, you know, manoeuvre into position if you are a seasoned intelligence officer, if you are someone 
like Putin, um, who knows what he's doing, you know, here he he is ideal material for an unwitting agent. Um, he wasn't the only one. There were huge numbers of unwitting agents involved in the whole thing. But a senior MI6 officer who operated against the Russians during the Cold War said, and it, it's recounted in the book, of course, said that Trump was an ideal unwitting agent, easily pushed into going what doing whatever the Russians wanted at any point. And this is a quote from him, his vanities, narcissism, egocentricity, naivety, sensitivity to criticism, his desire always for revenge and getting even, as well as his intellectual weaknesses and lack of knowledge and understanding of international politics mm. are all factors that a good intelligence officer can exploit. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You bring up Edward Snowden in this chapter, and I'd love to have your thoughts on Edward Snowden, because what was interesting is a lot of his rev revelations appeared to be timed to disrupt American relations with its allies. And there was an SIS officer you mentioned who believed Snowden quite possibly was an agent of the FSB, but not necessarily consciously. So I was wondering what your thoughts on Edward Snowden were. I think Snowden is a much more complex subject. I don't think Edward Snowden would know. <laughs> well, he, he might not if he's an unwitting agent. He was taken, the Americans played into the Russians' hands here. You know, um, taking his passport away was stupidity itself. It left him with nowhere to go other than Moscow. So he went to Moscow. Um, but if you were an um, an FSB and you were controlling an unwitting agent, that's precisely where you'd want it to be, um, is Moscow. If, equally, he was um, an FSB agent um, and actually under complete control and not unwitting at all, you would still want him to be in Moscow. Um, how did he get his documents to Moscow? You know, how all of these questions, why was someone who was so, you know, electronically savvy, think for one minute that uh, he could open his computer in his hotel room in Hong Kong and not have the Chinese all over it immediately. There are an awful lot of questions about Snowden, but I don't think, to be candid, anyone um, could possibly know. Was he unwitting or was he witting? Um, my money is that he probably was unwitting. My money is that he was probably manipulated by people who were not unwitting, um, who were agents themselves, and that he ended up um, taking the public rap in a way that I think, you know, it's important to point out that there are very legitimate, very legitimate questions to be asked about the way that the world electronically now is controlled and the way in which the intelligence services can access this and access that. And um, they say, oh, we only ever do it legally. Well, actually, um, there was a period during this time that, that he was working where they weren't operating legally, and they certainly weren't operating in a way that, um, that, that was attuned to the way people thought they were operating. Um, now, I don't, for one minute, that doesn't mean I think people are doing it in a mendacious way. I do believe, actually, that um, anyone who works for the MI for MI6 or GCHQ or NSA or the CIA, um, in terms of collecting intelligence, they are doing that for a purpose. 
and for a decent purpose. And um, in many, on many occasions, it will be saving people's lives. Um, that's not what I'm saying here. You still can break the law in doing that. And I remember having an argument with a, a former GCHQ officer who said that they hadn't ever broken the law. And then um, it was later revealed that they had um, in the way they were operating. They changed the changed it back before the revelation that they'd been acting um, illegally because they just hadn't, I think, realised um, in their rush to get information that was going to save lives and who can blame them for that, um, they'd stepped over the mark. So we have to be careful. I think we have to be careful about the way things are done. And I think um, some of the concerns that Snowden had personally were legitimate concerns, and I think that someone um, perhaps less sympathetic to the intelligence services who felt that way and felt it was going worse than that, you, I can see why they get in, embroiled in this. Mm, no, definitely. Well, thank you for that. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to add that's important to you on this topic? Um, I think, you know, I would go back to my original point, you know, we're talking about agent motivation. It's complex. Um, you've got someone who at one point is is doing it for revenge. Um, and then perhaps you know, they're doing it for loyalty to you as the agent runner. Or, and then perhaps they're doing it because their beliefs have changed so much over years because of the intelligence they've had. Uh, they're doing it for um, because it's the right thing to do, and that's mm. one of the chapters in the book. Mm. Um, mm. You know, an awful lot of people who spied for the Russians during the Cold War and during the what might be called the First Cold War, i.e., the period between the two world wars, um, they were doing what they did because they thought it was the right thing to do. See, that, the book is a the book is about. My spy, spy, and and that's really the you. Know, that would have been my favourite title for it. Why <laughs> spies, spy? Um, because I think it gets across to people what we're talking about. Well, what I'll do, I'll make sure we name this episode that for you. <laughs> 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 but, Michael, thank you so much for all that. Um, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? I have a I have a website. It's very simple. Um, www Michael Smith author mm -hmm. or one word dot yeah. com. Yeah, and people, you know, there's ways of contacting me. So if people have questions, you know, please feel free to email me yeah. through that 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 website. Brilliant. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. No, Chris, it's been a it's been great fun. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.